following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. So I was going to say that at least Tim didn't have me preach on some of the really difficult verses or chapters in Leviticus. So to start out this morning, we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 26, but a little bit of congregation participation before we get started. So I'm going to have two questions. First, for those that are here, how many of you currently are a parent, whether your children are still in the house or, or your children are grown and out of the house? It's Kyung and I are empty nesters, so our kids are grown up. So how many people are parents here? Okay, quite a few. Here's a tricky question. How many in this room currently are a child or one time in your life were a child? Okay, except for a couple of rotator cuff injuries, that's everybody. Okay, so as either a parent dealing with our children or as a child, we enjoy blessings. We enjoy getting blessed and we enjoy being able to bless others. As a child, don't we love to receive gifts? And as a parent, when we see our child and the smile on their face when they open up a present or it's their birthday, um, it really gives us great joy to be able to bless our children. And I don't mean spoil, but bless them appropriately. And also children, as they are able to bless their parents, maybe not as often, but still. I can remember one example for most folks that have been here a while. They know that I was in the military. I was deployed to Iraq, and I timing just didn't work out, so I missed all of our children's birthdays. I missed my wife's birthday and our oldest son's graduation all in one shot. So for my wife's birthday, I didn't find out till after the fact, but the children made her birthday dinner. They weren't able to take her out, but they made this dinner and they took pictures and, you know, the smile on her face of being blessed by your children making dinner on a special occasion was something that she'll never forget. Also blessing our spouse when we're able to do great things for them. One example that I can remember, my time in the military, I had to do a lot of traveling, so I was able to rack up quite a bit of frequent flyer miles. And then I retired and I was a civilian, and we were living in Okinawa, this was 2014, and our younger son was graduating college, and that was back in University of Northern Colorado. So we had a flight to Denver, so the routing is Okinawa to Tokyo, two-hour flight, two-and-a-half-hour flight, easy. But then you have that ten-and-a-half-hour flight that goes from Tokyo to Denver. And we all love those long, overwater, nighttime flights in economy class. So I had this brilliant idea that I'm going to do some checking with all the miles that I'd accumulated. I was able to upgrade to business class. But I didn't tell my wife that I'd done that. So we flew up to Tokyo when we're getting ready to get on the airplane. And I just kind of sneakily moved over to the business line, and she didn't notice. And get into the front of the airplane, and we're starting to walk towards the back. She's in front of me. And about halfway through business, I said, oh, my wife's Korean. So I said, Yobo, which is honey, your sweetheart. I said, Yobo, here's our seats. 
And she turned and looked at me like, yeah, right, this is not where we're sitting. And she continued to walk. And I was like, okay, if you want to fly in the back. But I popped my overhead or my carry-on in the overhead, and I sat down. And there was that momentary pause, and then reality set in. And the grin was from ear to ear that for ten and a half hours, she wouldn't be in this cramped little seat. Um, So... You know, again, we we like to bless other people, and and not because we get something necessarily from it, but just because we can bless them. Um, And and I jokingly say that the smile was maybe even bigger than when I asked her to marry me. So I don't know if she enjoyed business class more than the marriage, but business class was temporal, and I'm permanent. So, as children, we think we're often good. I know because I was one at one point. Um, that's not often the case. Uh, you know, I, I'm here now bringing a message as a pastor, but in high school I was a troublemaker. Um, suspended twice, once for fighting and once for a senior prank that went quite bad. Um, when my wife found out about it, she was quite shocked. Um, And I won't give any details since we're getting close to Grace's graduation. I don't want to be responsible for anything that would go wrong. If you want to talk to me afterwards and fight details, maybe, but, you know. uh, Nobody got hurt. That's the important thing. But I was not a good kid in high school. Um, As parents, we like to think that we're good parents. And many times we are, but when we become parents, there's no overarching instruction manual that says this is how to be a parent, and we all make mistakes. I know for myself there's many times that I wished I could have hit the rewind or reset button in dealing with our children. But in life you can't do that. Uh, We make mistakes. But even though we as people are far from perfect parents, We have a Heavenly Father who is perfect. He knows what's best for us always. And as opposed to us who can have a bad day at the office and bring it home, God never has a bad day at the office. He's always even keeled. God never has raging hormones that cause him to act irrationally. You don't have to worry about, oh, I better give two sacrifices this week because... Hormones are unbalanced. No, God is just even keeled all the time. His patience goes way beyond what we deserve. So as we dig into Leviticus chapter 26, we see that this is the only chapter in Leviticus that is neither legal or ritualistic in nature. A quick review of Leviticus so far, the first seven chapters, we cover the sacrifices. Eight through ten was ordination and work of the priests. 11 to 15 were laws of cleanliness. 16 and 17 covered the Day of Atonement and moral laws. 18 to 20 covered moral laws, incest, honesty, thievery, and idolatry. 21 to 24, 9 covered regulations for the priests, offerings, and annual feasts. 24, 10 to 23 covered punishment for blasphemy, murder, or injuries in 25 was a Sabbath year, Jubilee, land tenure, and slavery. So chapter 26 creates an epilogue to the Holiness Code that was presented in chapters 17 to 25. 
just as, as those of us who are parents, we lay out rules and regulations and consequences for our children, now God is telling his people that being obedient leads to blessings and being disobedient leads to judgments or punishments. But at the end of it all, there's forgiveness and restoration if we have a humble and contrite heart and we confess. So as we look at chapter 26, we see a picture of a loving parent who just communicated expectations on how their children should live their lives. God is telling his excuse me, God is telling his people that obediently following his instructions will result in their being blessed, which is a key theme throughout the Old Testament. Obedience results in blessings. But that disobedience will result in an ever-increasing level of punishment until they turn from their disobedient path. Yet throughout the scale of judgment, God will never forget his promises or his covenant with his people. So I'm going to read portions of Leviticus 26, verses 1 through 17. You shall not make idols for yourself, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves. Nor shall you set an engraved stone in your land to buy down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field yield their fruit. Your threshings shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred. And a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I will also do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. Now jumping down to verses 27 to 31. After all this, if you do not obey me but walk contrary, and I want to make a point here, depending on your translation, and I looked at four in preparation, some say contrary, 
some say hostility. Hostility or hostile is really the correct translation of the Hebrew word. So just keep that in mind. Walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. And my soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. And I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. But here's the beautiful part of chapter 26, verses 40 to 46. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them and and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord your God. But for their sake I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God, I am the Lord. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. So we see that through this passage there are rewards and punishments based upon the degree of loyalty and obedience that the nation of Israel demonstrated towards the Mosaic Covenant. The well-being of the nation of Israel at any given time in their subsequent history would be defined by the terms of Leviticus 26 and also Deuteronomy chapter 28. And as opposed to those of us now that we have the personal relationship with God, what we do as individual, this is really more of a corporate or national uh, commands with resulting blessings and judgments. On the whole, Israel remained faithful to Yahweh until the end of Solomon's reign, on the whole. From that point onward, it was a downward spiral until the exile happened. And we see in chapter 26 that there's a picture of symmetry here between the blessings and the judgments. In verses 4, 5, and 10, we see that God is saying that they will have fertile land. But in verses 16, 19, 20, and 26, God says that there will be unproductive land. In verse 5, they will live in safety. And in verse 33, they will live in a foreign nation. In verse 6, savage beasts are removed. And in 22, the beasts will devour them. The sword is removed in, chapter, in verse 6. 
And in verse 25, the sword avenges. They will have victory over their enemies in verse 7. But in 17 and 25, they will be defeated by their enemies. And the most beautiful one in verse 9 is that they will attain God's favor. But in verse 17, they will get God's disfavor and hostility. In looking at this contextually, at the time that this took place, the idea of blessings and curses was a common feature of Near East treaties or covenants. God is keeping his covenant, and as a literary form, this chapter is similar to ancient treaties between a king and his people. And we know that at this point, Israel did not have a king, a human king. God was intended to be Israel's king. And here, the king is making a covenant with his people, Israel. And in the Near East at this time, it was customary for legal treaties to conclude with this type of language that there was blessings for those that would follow the king's decrees and there was curses for those who would go against what the king had decreed. So as we dig in a little bit deeper, really the first two verses, the entire chapter hinges on it, um, the actions that Israel takes from this point on. Verses 1 and 2 really is talking about proper worship. The placing of his requirements at the beginning is related to the blessings and curses that happens later. And the outcome is dependent on the behavior of the nation of Israel. Verse 1 talks about idols. So at this time, idols were statues, pillars, poles, whatever. But as we move forward to take it to our time, idols rarely take that form anymore. Idols are money, status, our jobs, maybe our latest phone, our house. Those are the things that become our idols that we wrestle with. The nation of Israel at that point was wrestling with idols of the foreign lands they had gone in to occupy. In looking at the New Testament, the term idolatry really is used to designate covetousness, which is a really tricky word to say. Um, and Paul talks about this in Romans 1, to 25, the origin of idolatry. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So God is warning them not to worship anything that's made by hands. Again, in that time period, statues, idols, us, again, money is made by hand, houses are made by hand. Everything that we put before God becomes an idol, and it's created by man, not created by God. Matthew 6.24, Jesus talks about this. 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon was a common Chaldean word used in the East to express material riches. And here it's personified as a kind of God of the world, little g God. Jesus is saying that we are created to serve, that comes from Genesis 2.15, and hence we must choose our master. It is impossible to serve two masters whose interests are different and conflicting, and the idea of serving God and mammon are in direct conflict to each other. It's in mammon's interest to be hoarded and loved. Those that worship money tend to hoard and want more and more and more. Those that have a big house want bigger. Those that have a 50-inch TV want a 75. It just goes on and on. But God's interest is that mammon is distributed to those in need and to be lightly esteemed. We should be generous. God wants to claim our supreme love and our undivided service. Think about innocent present-day idolatry. For some denominations, they feel that the priest is the one that can bless them, independent of the truth of the gospel message. To suppose that we are nearer to God in certain places than others. To seek sanctity or even salvation in the sacraments apart from the saving faith in Jesus. To think that only Tim or myself or one of the elders can pray for you. All of us, if we are believers of Christ, have a priestly identity, and we can pray for each other. It doesn't have to be a certain office. It doesn't have to be a position. And really, if you look at the Reformation, the, the, the foundation of that was to do away with the caste system, which didn't happen so well, but it was all of us were to be equal in Christ. Last summer, when the church went on a trip to Israel, we got to see some of that displayed. Um, one place in particular, I remember, was the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where allegedly that was where the cross was, um, the cross of Jesus. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be in awe when we go to those places, but there were some people that it was like touching that was going to be an extra blessing. It, it's a rock. Jesus is living inside of us if we are believers of Christ. It was wonderful to be there, but we shouldn't worship that. We should worship the living God. Garden of Gethsemane was another place where, where we saw that. Um, even the belief that baptism can save somebody. I always look at Luke twenty three forty three, where... Jesus said the one thief would be with him that day in paradise. I really don't think he had an opportunity to get baptized when he believed in Jesus right there. Um, we are to keep the Sabbath. And I know that's really difficult. And the Sabbath break of just 24 hours of just being near to God. I have a really hard time getting set aside 24 hours um, between work and school and family. It, it's, it's challenging. I mean, it really is. But yet God's word says that we should 
keep his Sabbath, um, whether it's on a Friday or a Monday, whatever works for you, but we should have that break. And we should, we're to reverence God's sanctuary. So this could be a little challenging, but for the Old Testament, God's sanctuary was the tabernacle and then the temple. For those of us today, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. There is no building, physical building, that God indwells like he did in the Old Testament. We are God's sanctuary. We are God's temple. And God's word says we're supposed to take care of it. We often hear sermons or or portions of sermons that deal with uh, adultery or alcoholism, but we need to watch how we take care of our bodies. Gluttony and slothfulness are also sins. Um, And I I know that sometimes some of us can exercise more than others. Um, You know, I'm not getting any younger when I get out of bed. It sounds like Rice Krispies with milk poured on it, snap, crackle, pop. Um, You know, but God's word says we're supposed to, to have reverence to a sanctuary, which is our bodies. We don't get a second body. Um, I would love to, to go over to Expat Auto and say, yeah, can you replace these parts on me? They throw me up on the lift. They do that. They send me out, and I'm better than when I walked in. You know, we only get one shot at this. So we need to take care of what God has given to us. We need to honor it um, and, and do what we can to keep it running as smoothly and as efficiently as possible. Now we move into the blessings the nice part, verses 3 to 10. And it talks about plenty from fruits and vegetables and produce from the land and rain and peace. They'll be stronger than their enemies, stronger than the surrounding nations. They'll be fruitful. Their population will increase. They'll never be short of food. And the best one of all, in verses 11 to 13, God will live among his people. There will be fellowship with him. There will be in close community. God will set his tabernacle among the people. We look at this Old Testament where God's design was to dwell with his people. And you go to the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21.3. And John is talking about the new Jerusalem. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. This special relationship with God is the goal of the covenant, that we are in close fellowship with him. God has brought the nation of Israel out of captivity in Egypt. Their burdens were lifted. They were released from slavery. They regained their freedom and dignity. And he never designed it for them to go back into bondage. So the primary blessing in our lives is really this close, intimate relationship with God. It's not having the perfect house. It's not having the perfect spouse, because I'm not a perfect spouse, and none of us are perfect. It's having that relationship with God, because that puts everything else in place. 
going back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God, and you will not lack in necessities. Needs, not wants. Now we move into the rather disturbing part of the passage, the judgments. Hostility occurs seven times in verses 21 to 41. What would happen if we as children showed open hostility to our parents? And I don't mean just like disagreeing or not listening, but open hostility. Because that's what God's word is saying is happening here. That we as his people, when we don't follow God's commandments, we are being openly hostile to the infinite holy God. And don't the consequences of our actions in, in some way, if not a very large portion, depend on the position of whoever is being offended? Some may have already heard this or read it, because I read this in a book, but think about the consequences of slapping somebody. So, like somebody who was a friend or a peer, if I slapped them, you know, there's probably not going to be legal consequences. Maybe we'll get into a little tussle or whatever, but there's really not going to be much that comes out of it. What would happen if you slapped your boss? Like, tomorrow is our CCF staff meeting. And if we're in there, and Tim says something I disagree, if I just reach across a pop, I think first he would be just, like, shocked. And I may not be here next week in the same position. There would be consequences. Think about military. You're at boot camp, and the drill sergeant's in your face. And drill sergeants are either tall, and they got that brimmed hat, kind of like a woodpecker. They peck in your head or in your chest, depending on how tall they are. Yeah. And they're doing that, and, you're just, and you just pop the drill sergeant. Okay, theoretically, in today's military, you can't touch somebody. I said theoretically. In my day, when I went to boot camp, early 80s, you could touch somebody. And I guarantee the drill sergeant would have touched him and got up close and personal for slapping him. How about a police officer? If you slapped a police officer, you're probably going to get taken away. You may even get tased. Who knows? Let's take it one step further. Let's say, and not that I want to do this, but let's say somehow I was able to get a trip to North Korea. And I went to North Korea. And somehow, Kim Jong-un was going to greet the people on this trip. And he's going down the line, shaking hands, and he gets to me. And I just reach out and slap his chubby face. What do you think is going to happen to me? Probably in like half a second, I'm dead. And if not, then I'm probably going to be one of his bizarre execution victims. So we see that the level of the person we're dealing with determines the consequences from our actions. So if we are hostile to the infinitely holy God, what do you think the consequences of our actions are going to be? And this whole section shows a a continuous downward spiral. You know, it's time after time. And at no point does God ever say that he will abandon Israel, only that they will be cursed. So the first time is in verses 14 to 17. 
terror, disease, fever. Land will produce for their enemies no longer for Israel. We see this in Judges 2.14. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Then the second time, continued disobedience. Verses 18 to 20. The power is removed from the nation of Israel. There's no rain or produce. Work is futile. Haggai 1, 10 to 11. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and all the labor of your hands. And again a third time, 21 to 22, plagues times seven, and wild beasts will kill the children. 2 Kings 17 to 25, and it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. A fourth time of continued disobedience in verses 23 to 26. This is getting even more serious. God is turning his face from the nation of Israel. He's turning away. There'll be war from other nations, pestilence, and they'll be subjugated. Ezekiel 5.12 One third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. And one third shall fall by the sword all around you. And will scatter another third to all the winds. And I'll draw out a sword after them. Not enough food. Second Kings 6.25 And there was a great famine in Samaria and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cob, which is a pint of dove droppings, for five shekels of silver. And a fifth time of disobedience in verse 27 to 35. And probably the pinnacle of this is the cannibalism. And it's fulfilled in Samaria. Second Kings 6.28 Then the king said to her, What is troubling you? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and tomorrow we will eat my son. And now we go back to the very beginning of the chapter, talk about idols and idol worship. And how much that displeases God when idols take his place in our lives. And how idols are just lifeless forms. Psalm 135, 15 to 18. The idols of the nations are silver and gold the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them, and so is everyone who trusts in them. These are spiritually dead people following spiritually dead idols. Their cities and their safe places are destroyed and their sacrifices are no longer accepted. The land is finally destroyed and barren. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins and a den of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. Jeremiah 9.11 The term scatter is often used in the Old Testament to designate exile. 
Exile is the ultimate and final judgment that God placed upon the nation of Israel. And it happened to the ten tribes of Israel by the Assyrians, and it happened to the two tribes of Judah by the Babylonians. The land will enjoy Sabbath rest during the enemy's occupation and exile. From Saul, the first king of Israel, until the Babylonian captivity is about 490 years. During that time, there was 70 Sabbaths of years. So the Babylonian captivity lasted those 70 Sabbath years that the nation of Israel failed to observe when they were under the direction of kings. The people who remained alive but were scattered in exile, think about their mental state. Feelings of continual terror. Ezekiel 21.7 And it shall be when they say to you, Why are you sighing that you shall answer? Because of the news. When it comes, every heart will melt. All hands will be feeble. Every spirit will faint. And all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it is coming and shall be brought to pass says the Lord God. But then, from the judgments, we move into restoration. The beautiful part of this passage. That no matter how cursed Israel was during these judgments, God never fully abandoned the nation of Israel. He remembered them. And after the Israelites experienced a devastating judgment of exile, that they would turn to the Lord and confess their treachery. And they would repent and come back to God. They must recognize that their punishment is deserved before restoration and forgiveness can be experienced. God will remember the Abrahamic promises even though Israel has not obeyed the stipulations of the Mosaic Law. This restoration upon repentance did occur when the Israelites repented and turned to God while in exile in Babylon. And if you look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, Daniel knew of the prophecy in Jeremiah 25:12, and he was able to count the years, and he knew that the 70-year exile was coming to an end, and he prayed to God, that Israel would be restored to the promised land. So as we look at Leviticus 26-32-45, we see in here a picture, a preview of the history of Israel that includes the experiences of apostasy, exile, and restoration. This whole chapter was really prophetic in nature, even though it was supposed to be directions that God was giving to his people. So we look at confession in verse 40 and 41. The judgments of God, just like the gospel of Jesus Christ, can either lead us to life or condemn us to death. They may sanctify and save or they may leave our soul more bound up in chains than ever. It's only true, heartfelt repentance and humbleness and confession that restores us to God. So a contrite heart 
confessing unfaithfulness, confessing sins and accepting responsibility. That's what Israel needed to do to be restored. In verses 42 to 46, God will always remember his promises and his covenants. God never lies. God never forgets. God will never abandon his people because he desires all to be saved. And his patience is everlasting. And he desires restored fellowship. We look forward forward to the New Testament and we see that Jesus bore our curse so that we might receive the blessings of Abraham, righteousness, and life by faith. It only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Our blessing comes because we are in Christ. But even when we are in Christ, we can still receive corrections when we walk contrary to God's word and we're disobedient and we're hostile. Even though we confess our sins and we can be restored, sometimes our sins can carry a lingering curse. Somebody who might have been involved in an extramarital affair may have a child that should never stop us from confessing and restoring our fellowship with God. We also have to, re- have to accept our responsibility for our actions. For the Christian, obedience is a key to blessing. See this in James one twenty-two to 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. We also have a tendency to forget God when things are going well. I am so guilty of this. When everything's smooth, it's easy to slack off on your quiet time, uh, on your time in the Word, on your time in prayer. But God's Word said we shouldn't do that. We should be continually in His Word, continually in prayer, continually striving for that close, strong relationship with God so that nothing may come between us and Him. This passage is Old Testament, but this and the teachings of the New Testament show that God is willing to forgive us if we humble ourselves and come back to him, no matter what we've done. God's curses and judgment are not his final word, but rather a wake-up call for us to get our act together. God wants to restore his people in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, place a premium on heartfelt repentance for restoration and reconciliation to God. It only comes through the cross. It only comes through the blood of Jesus. Let us pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.com dot o r g